Yesterday morning, I had a bowl of blueberry crisp dessert with a dollop of ice cream as my breakfast. Yes, I did. And do not judge me. It was wonderful. It was made by Cheryl Van Dusen. It was one of the desserts made for the Back Bay Mission uh, celebration at, at the Shrimp Boil on Friday night. She sent it home with me to share with Julie. Julie took a bite and said, I, I've had enough for today. And I put it in the fridge and there it was waiting on Saturday morning yesterday. And I just knew I had to go ahead and eat it. I'm pretty sure, by the way, that when we get into eternity, that we'll be able to eat as much blueberry crisp and ice cream as we want and not have to ever worry about a single problem, whether it's about cholesterol or too many calories or, or any of those sorts of sorts of things. But you know as well as I do that if we eat dessert for breakfast every day and we don't pay careful attention to getting the right kinds of things in our meals, in our menus, then there can be some problems in the life that we have here now. In fact, we need some broccoli and some cauliflower. I, I don't wake up on a Saturday morning thinking I'd like to have a plate full of cauliflower for breakfast. But you know as well as I do that those sorts of things are the kinds of things we need in order for our, our bodies to thrive and for us to move forward in, 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 in wholesome kinds of ways. Today's scripture reading is kind of like a, a, a spiritual plate of broccoli and cauliflower. It's not the sort of thing you, you wake up in the morning thinking about and considering, oh boy, I want to hear some, some ways of living, some little guidelines for how to get through the day. It doesn't quite, quite feel like those, oh, like those big texts in the Bible. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. I mean, just those, those few words. There's a, there's a sermon series there. There's a book there. There's, there's, there are some late night conversations about what, what is the meaning of life and what, is, what does that simple phrase, the beginning of the Bible, mean? In the beginning, God. Or, or skip ahead to the end, to Revelation 21 and the promise from Jesus that in the end of all ends, God will make God's home with us. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be no more weeping, no more dying. Death, the promise is stated. Death will be no more. What a beautiful text. Later on this week at Bill Milky's service, we'll read from Revelation 21. It's a word that I often like to share in times of sorrow and grief, as a reminder that someday in that great day, weeping, dying, will be no more. Or, or go back to the Gospel of Luke and to that scene on the cross where Jesus is being crucified and he prays, forgive them. They just don't know. Forgive them. Each of those texts are, are theologically rich and, and full of all kinds of possibilities for, for, the, for the pulpit. But sometimes, sometimes we can't quite always go for the, the deeper words. We need to sit and listen to the practical ones. The, the kind of texts like we, like we heard today, the broccoli and cauliflower versions of spiritual vegetables that the Apostle Paul or maybe perhaps one of his students wants us to pay attention to. It's a way of saying, here's some guidelines for how to live. Here's, some, here's something you can do today and tomorrow and throughout this next week and this month and this year, frankly, throughout your life that will give you strength and encouragement, will encourage your faith and give you hope, frankly, in the morning as you continue to live in this way. It's about getting back to basics. I think I heard, I think it was Vince Lombardi once. 
the football coach of the Green Bay Packers, who was asked after a particularly bad game, what are you going to do tomorrow in practice? He said, tomorrow I'm going to walk in the locker room and I'm going to hold up a ball and I'm going to say, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> and then we're going to get back into blocking and tackling and running and catching and throwing. We're going to get back to the basics. When things are getting messed up, when things are confusing, when we've forgotten exactly what it is we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to do it, sometimes that's what we need. Not deep philosophical ponderings, but instead simple, clear instructions. That's what Paul's doing this morning. Be careful how you live. Act wise, not unwise. There's some unscrupulous folks out there. He uses the word evil. It's kind of a tough word, but there are some folks out there who are a bit difficult to deal with. And, you know, you want to be sure you use your time wisely. Don't drink too much. Don't get drunk. And in all things, be grateful. Be grateful in, in all things. That's a pretty darn good list. In fact, it sounds a little bit like the kind of advice a parent would give to a son or a daughter going off to college for the first time. I realized that as I was getting ready for this sermon this week that a lot of kids, including here at Ohio State, are actually coming back to school this weekend or going to college for the first time. And can't you just hear a parent saying, now listen, listen, be wise, use your time well, Use your time well. Don't hang out with the wrong kind of crowd. And please don't drink too much and always be grateful. It's just, a, it's just a, kind of has that parental sort of instruction and feel to it. Well, it's pretty good advice for college kids. And frankly, it's pretty good advice for adults too, for full-grown adults. It's pretty good advice for all of us to simply live our, way in a way that, our life in a way that reflects who we claim to be as followers of Jesus. I mean, just think about what your life would be like if you woke up tomorrow and you said, today I'm going to use my time wisely. Today I'm, I'm, I'm going to pay attention to the things that matter. I'm going to be kind and grateful and gracious, kind-hearted. And you did that on Monday. And then you did that on Tuesday. And, and then you did it for a week and then for a month and then three months. And trust me, when I'm talking about this right now, I'm preaching to the guy in the mirror because it's clear instruction that not just... The church needs to hear, the pastor needs to hear it as, as well. And here's what I guarantee, if we live like that for a week, for a month, for a, a season, for a year, people will notice. People will notice that there's something different about the way we're living. So these words from Paul are clear and give us a clear direction for our lives. But sometimes, though, we, we wonder exactly how are we supposed to live. I recall a man coming to see me a few years ago in the church I used to serve. He was a young man in his late 20s. He'd grown up in a non-religious non home. Not an anti-religious home, just a non-religious home. Religion was not a part of their lives. They respected Christians and Jews and other folks, but it wasn't something they, they paid attention to. Then one Sunday, he was invited by a friend to come to worship and heard a message of hope and grace and forgiveness and thought to himself, this, this is the sort of encouragement I need in my life. And a few months later, I was thrilled to baptize him to receive him as a full member in, in the life of the church. And then after a year or so, he came in to see me. He was quite distressed. He said, I, I've been part of this Bible study group, and, and they were talking about how God has a plan for your life and how God has numbered your days, and, and it's as though you're supposed to know exactly what it is God wants you to do. He'd just finished law school. He was moving on into his career, and he, he was really quite disturbed and upset and, and anxious and worried. What if I wasn't supposed to go to law school? What if I shouldn't become an attorney? What if, what if I don't marry the right person? If God's got someone picked out for me and I opened my Bible and I turned to Ephesians 5 and I read this text and I said, here is God's will. God hasn't planned exactly everything you're supposed to do, 
What God has done is instead invited you to consider a life of kindness, of graciousness, of gratitude, of not overindulging too much, whether it's breakfast every day or dessert for breakfast every day or drinking too much wine at night, all those things. What the instruction says is if you want to be within God's will, simply live like this. Then I added the word from Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. I said, I, I don't care if you're selling beer at, at Kauffman Stadium where the Royals play or, or, or if you're working as an, as eventually as a Supreme Court justice someday in your legal career. No matter where you are in life, if you live within those parameters, you are within the will of God. In another part of the letter, Paul instructs the church in Ephesus to speak the truth. Think, think of what our country would be like Think of what Washington, D.C. would be like today if the simple teaching of speaking the truth was followed by everyone. That's really the invitation here. It's, it's, not, it's not some incredibly hard to understand philosophical or theological idea. It's about doing the kinds of things your kindergarten teacher told you to do that would get you through life. The mere fact that these behaviors are being discussed in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus implies that, yeah, there, there are probably some, some areas in their congregation that need some attention. He wants them to understand. 2,000 years ago, it was true for them, and it's true not just for us, but it's true for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. Simple, clear, and direct, but not always easy. Simple and clear, but not always easy. The great composer Tchaikovsky was asked once, uh, how do you compose? And he said, sitting down. It's really, it's really, that's a perfect illustration, isn't it? It's really not about coming up with these brilliant, amazing ideas and then writing out. It's about sitting down and doing the work. Consider what it would be like if you would take that step one day to begin the day with gratitude. And then to, be, to say to yourself, I'm going to treat every person I encounter with kindness. I'm going to listen well. I'm going to avoid getting caught up in too much stuff. What would it be like after a day, a week, three weeks, a month, a season, a year? I guarantee you our lives, our lives would would be transformed. It was Thomas Groom, the great theological educator, who said, you want to make Christians? Give them Christian things to do. It's so obvious, and yet somehow it seems to be so far away so often. I was ordained 30 years ago, back in 1988, at the First Christian Church of Hanford, California, a little farming town in Northern, Northern California. My very good friend, my first boss right out of seminary, uh, right out of, of college, Doug Dornhecker was there. He preached the sermon. In his sermon, my ordination sermon, he compared me to Madonna and Michael Jackson. He did. That's the last time that's ever happened, by the way. <clears throat> Later in the service, my good friend, who was also my first boss after seminary, who was a former pastor here, Dick Wing, went over to the communion table, and he said, this is the largest table in the world. All are invited and welcome to share here in the supper of our Lord. Later in the service, my mom sang a solo. She has a beautiful contralto voice. My father offered the prayer during the laying on of hands. It was a, it was a powerful moment for me and for the beginning of my ministry. Later on, during the reception out in the courtyard outside of the sanctuary, a man came over to me, a man in his early 70s, 
tall, about as tall as, as me. He said, I have some things I want to share with you. I knew a lot about this man. He grew up in southeastern Kansas on a farm, played high school basketball, but couldn't afford to go to college. And so he started his own business right at 18, was married, I think, by the age of 20, became a very successful businessman, retired comfortably, had a beautiful condo in Southern California, had done very, very well. In fact, the kinds of things that, that gave him his success were the sort of Midwestern values that many of us know about. He was kind. He was gracious. He was hardworking. He treated everyone equally and fairly. And those gifts and those practices really helped him blossom in his life. He pulled me aside. And he said, I, you didn't ask for it, but I have advice for you. You will be a success no matter the size of your church, whether you're in a large church with multi-campuses in a large city somewhere, or you're in a small congregation with 35 members. No matter where you are, you will be a success in ministry if you learn the practice of loving your people. Go and do that, and you will be a success. Now, I, I, I've got to confess and be clear. I've, I've failed at that too many times. There are too many times when I knew where I was needed or a kind word should have been spoken instead an angry word was given. I, there's too many times. I don't want to go through all those, but still the words of that man, who by the way was my grandfather, Robert Small, the words of that man continue to echo in my mind, saying that, that it, Glenn, it is this simple and this hard. If we can love one another, think about this. If we can love one another and put that into practice, we plant the seeds for changing the world. What would happen in our neighborhoods if we became known as the church where love is real, where kindness and graciousness and forgiveness are the gifts that are practiced by the people in the pews, in the hallways, in the courtyard, in the grassy areas, in the streets, in all of our missions and ministries around the city and around the world? What would happen if that became the primary thing that was known for us? This, this section of the letter to the ancient church ends with the instructions to give thanks for everything. To give thanks for everything. Have you noticed that the people who are most grateful, that the ones who write the most thank you notes, that the people who use the word thank you over and over again, that are most grateful just to be alive, who seem to enjoy just taking in a deep breath because it means that God is filling their soul again and again over and over. Have you noticed they not only are they the most grateful, they're also the most joyful. They seem to be the most centered and, and grounded. Paul wants the church in Ephesus. He wants the church in Columbus. He wants the church around the world to take this to heart, to understand that at the foundation of our, of our following of Jesus is this idea of being grateful. It's about being gracious. The Greek word used in the New Testament for, for grace is charis or charis. It literally means a gift, freely given. The Greek word for thanksgiving is a word that you'll recognize that we sometimes use at the communion table. It is the word Eucharist, or in the Greek, Eucharisteo. It means literally, I give thanks. But I hope you heard it. At the center of Eucharist is that word, grace, charis. Foundational to everything we do and say then is this idea of being grateful, even for the breath that you've got in your lungs in this moment something transformative about that. Uh, on this, on this, while working on this sermon last week, I, I looked up some of Roy Burkhart's old sermons. 
and just flip through to see if you ever preached on gratitude. And I found one from 1951. Dr. Burkhart, you might remember, was the senior minister of this church in the 30s, 40s, and, and 50s, here for 23 years, and really, really helped to lead and transform this congregation into the strong one that it is even, even today. He preached a sermon on gratitude, and then he, then he finished with these simple instructions. You know, some of you who remember Dr. Burkhardt have said to me, he was the kind of preacher who could give you instructions and, and clearly tell you how you ought to live your life without sounding like he was wagging his finger or, or telling you what to do or lecturing you. He just had this mesmerizing way of engaging you and bringing you in. He closed his sermon on gratitude by saying, every day in the year are we showing we appreciate the blessings of God. Every day in the year, are we seeking to find the faith that will be strong enough to bring us hope? Every day of the year, are we kindly affectionate one to another with love? Every day of the year, do we let our faith lead us to hope? Are we affectionate with one another in the power of love? Every day of the year, simple, clear, direct. Imagine. The, the transformative power that could take hold of your life and mine if these basic ways of living were put into practice. It's kind of interesting, though, if you, if you want to see how, uh, how sometimes we, we fail at this way of living, go, go and read, go, go up and dial up your, your favorite news site, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or something else that you read. Pick almost any article and then read the comments. And it's, it's just, it's still surprising to me how quickly those comments and those, those, those commentaries back and forth with each other just, just fall apart into name calling and finger pointing and, and, and just yelling over the internet. It's just, it's just unbelievable. I think how different our Twitter and Facebook feeds would be if we learn to practice what Paul taught 2,000 years ago. He knew nothing about Facebook or Twitter, but he sure knew about being mean-spirited versus being kind. An article I read about the Internet, this, this, this was dated 2003. I found it last week, but it's from 15 years ago. Don't use the Internet to gossip and never hit the copy button without asking yourself whether you are gossiping or engaging in self-enhancing or self-protecting communication. It's pretty good advice. But the internet didn't invent gossip. The internet didn't invent mean-spirited talk, finger-pointing and angry speech. No, no, it's been around for thousands of years before Paul even. It's been around and it's still an issue for us to pay attention to. It's pretty good advice. I want to close with this. I, I took a class during my doctor work at, at, at the School of Theology at Claremont in Southern California with a professor named Greg Riley. Dr. Riley was brilliant, he is brilliant. He has, holds five uh, degrees, four of them graduate level degrees. One of them's a PhD from Harvard. He's fluent in five languages and, and pretty fluent in two or three others. Just a, a brilliant guy with an amazing background. I took a class with him in that doctor work called uh, Paul and the New Testament World. It was fascinating. We read through all of Paul's letters, even the ones that we weren't sure if Paul wrote, but we read through them anyway to get an understanding of how his mind worked. He found, Dr. Riley helped us on earth all kinds of things, Mesopotamian theology, Zoroastrianism that maybe Paul didn't even know he was influenced by. Go look up Zoroastrianism later on. It's a fascinating religion. All these sorts of things uh, were there in the class. It was just wonderful. I took tons of notes and, and we had great open-minded conversations about all the different influences on Paul and his life and his writing, his theology, his understanding of church and so forth. And then one day, Dr. Riley 
stood up from his desk, put his glasses down, and he took a deep breath. There was just a, just a hint of frustration in his voice. He said, preacher boys and girls, and that's the exact phrase he used, preacher boys and girls, are you paying attention to what we're studying here? Because it's not just about Zoroastrianism. It's not about Mesopotamian theology. It's not about all these influences from Egypt that seem to have applied and worked from Greek philosophy to Roman thinking and all kinds of ideas in Paul. What he's trying to do is help the church survive. What he's trying to do is give them skills for making it through every single day. Are you paying attention? Because I, if, if you preacher boys and girls don't preach this stuff, no one's going to come to your church. Now he had our attention. He sat back down in his chair and he sighed. He said, I, I've got to tell you, I've never joined a church. I attend every Sunday. My wife and I, and he named the church around the corner from the campus. I believe it was a little Methodist church. We attend there every Sunday. We like the pastor. We like the people. But we're waiting, we're waiting for a church that preaches, and he pointed at his text at Ephesians 5. We're waiting for a church that preaches this word, that takes this word seriously, where you can feel it in the pews, where you can sense it in the hallways, where you can experience it in the classes and the Bible studies and everywhere else. As soon as I find that church, I will join it and I'll give as much money as I possibly can to support them in their ministry and their work. His words were so simple. The instructions are so clear. And yet it's so hard, isn't it? To take that simple step, to move in the direction towards graciousness and kindness, and let these words guide us in everything we do. Amen.